0: I want to make clear Israel's position regarding a ceasefire. Just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor or after the terrorist attack of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen.
1: Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. That was Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu ruling out a ceasefire in Gaza. We're now almost a month into Israel's bombardment of the Strip over the past week. Israeli troops have gone in fought fierce battles with Hamas. The war, as you'll all know, was triggered by Hamas's attacks on southern Israel on the 7th of October, which killed more than 1,400 Israelis, mostly civilians, and took more than 200 as captives back to Gaza. Since then, Israeli bombs have raised much of the Strip, according to the local health authorities. The death toll in Gaza now stands at more than 9,000 people, the vast majority civilians. It's hard to fathom the trauma and terror that Israel suffered at Hamas's hands on the 7th of October. It is also hard to fathom the misery and suffering Israel's bombing of Gaza has caused since, especially coming on top of more than a decade and a half of blockade. The assault has killed some 4,000 Palestinian children, maybe more, in just four weeks. The question is what can end it? And this week we're going to look at what's happening in Gaza the mood in Israel, whether there's any ways to address Israel's concerns about Hamas and fears for its security that don't involve so much destruction, so many innocent lives lost. We'll do the episode in two parts. Towards the end, I'm going to speak to my colleague in Gaza, Azmi Kashawi, to talk about life in the Strip over the past few weeks. First, though, I'm happy to welcome back on Crisis Group's Israel expert, Myra Zonshine and Rob Bletcher, who's now Crisis Group's Future of Conflict director, but for many years was our Israel-Palestine director. Myra Rob, welcome back home. Hello, thanks Richard. So Myra, should we start with the mood in Israel? Obviously, the 7th of October attacks still very fresh and raw. but how has the, the sort of mood there? Has the sentiment among Israelis changed much as the Israeli bombardment, the campaign in Gaza uh, picked up?
0: So Israel, yeah, kind of slowly and incrementally has entered Gaza and there's already 15 or 16 soldier casualties in this ground operation. The mood here is kind of in this weird holding pattern of, well, we're just going to, you know, let the army do its thing. The IDF spokesperson provides statements every single day to the press. And they inform us of all kinds of targets that are being hit and certain Hamas officials that are being taken out. But we don't actually know what's happening there. And I think even some of the people in the government don't know what's happening on the ground. And there's a lot of fog around it. And so in the days since, I think the public sentiment has mostly been about kind of just getting used to a new normal, because now the economy has to try to continue to function and schools have to try to find alternate places if they don't have shelters. And so people are just kind of getting used to a new normal. And the hostage uh, issue is now becoming more and more prominent. They are putting more and more pressure on the government. There's been this call for an everyone for everyone hostage release, prisoner swap. So that's something that's gaining traction. But in the meantime, it's, you know, the goals of this mission remain the same, but the ways to get there are, are still very, very
1: unclear. And the goals, Israeli politicians talk a lot about destroying Hamas, but the formal objectives regarding Hamas laid out by the government are to destroy its military capability and topple its government from Gaza. So your sense is that that's still the goal or are there any signs that that's changed?
0: Yes. and And I think what we're seeing a little bit of leaks of behind closed doors is the different uh, approaches to how to do that and to the very real limitations of Israel's capacity to get underground. And so far, almost all of what we've seen has been destruction overground. So the question is if and when Israel is actually going to try to get underground and go into those tunnels, which everybody is saying is going to be Ruthless and and bloody, and probably very difficult and ineffective. So, that part of the operation is still not clear. And it kind of seems, for various reasons, like Israel's trying to avoid that, especially to avoid major casualties uh, to its own soldiers. But I think the overall message that the military is sending is that this is just going to be a very, very long operation that's going to have incremental results.
1: And we'll talk later about what Gaza is living through, about what daily life is like for Gazans. But Mayra, Israel also on the receiving end of, of, in this case, Hamas rockets. I mean, how extensive is that?
0: Yeah, it's, it's on a daily basis. In some parts of like the center north, like Tel Aviv and a little bit maybe north of here, it's not as frequent. But I've had rocket sirens here pretty much every day. They usually like to do one in the earlier part of the day and then one in the evening. That's been the pattern. And then for me, it's a minute and a half to get to a shelter because of my distance from Gaza. But for people who live along the coast in Ashdod and Ashkelon, which are two big port cities that are very close to Gaza, not to mention the Gaza envelope communities that are mostly evacuated. They only have a number of seconds or 30 seconds, and they have been under constant uh, barrage of rockets, sometimes 30 or 40 rockets at a time, several times a day. I think there's a lot of damage being done in that area um but luckily people do uh, mostly have not only the sirens but the shelters people who don't have shelters have I think tried to leave those areas but in some ways the country is is you know somewhat paralyzed by the rockets and they are very harrowing especially if you have young children on the other hand that you know life kind of is is going on here things can't come to a grinding halt people need to work
1: so when you talk to Israeli officials, and I've spoken to some, it's clear, and perhaps not surprising given what has happened, but it's clear that the notion of defeating Hamas, you know, even if it's not clearly defined what that entails, that's very entrenched. That Hamas can't stay in Gaza. that Israel doesn't have another option. That something broke on the 7th of October, that it's a new world. That's something you hear a lot. And even... People traditionally on the left in Israel, supporters of Palestinian rights, are sort of on the same page when it comes to destroying Hamas. Is that a fair description?
0: Yeah, I think it's a question not of of if to get rid of Hamas, but how, um, and what what price is, is worth paying for that, and what is the most effective way. Uh, but there's definitely, it's not just because of the horrendousness of the attack, and the fact, I mean, I heard some survivors in the South saying that What really hurt them, because some of them were volunteers who would take Gazans into Israeli hospitals, and they had some kind of minor civilian kind of exchange there. And they were shocked because it wasn't just Hamas terrorists, it was random civilians as well that came and and did these things. So that really hurt their ability to feel safe in that area. So it's not just the attack itself, but how are they ever going to go and live there again if
1: this stays? And how much, moreover, the civilian casualties in Gaza—the Palestinians that are being killed, the Palestinian children that are being killed—mean I how much are Israelis aware of those? I mean, do they shape what people are thinking at all?
0: So, on the news, you get very little images and reporting from Gaza, and then in general, I feel like the average Israeli is just frightened and traumatized, and doesn't even have like the mental room to deal with what's happening in Gaza. And I think people are aware to an extent, but I'm not sure, to be perfectly blunt, that they really care right now. I think I saw a military journalist tweet it very, you know, it's a clear representation of how people feel. It's like, we have to do this now because Hamas decided to do what it did on the 7th. And if Hamas hadn't done that, we would not have to be bombing now. It's something that must be done, and the the destruction that we're seeing in Gaza is is it has a precedent. I mean, we've seen it in previous operations uh, that Israel has done. We've seen it in Lebanon. It's this kind of you know way to combat guerrilla terror groups by destroying all the civilian infrastructure around them. So it's not something new. Israelis have have been witness to this before, and I I really just don't think that they are you know interested in the the other side at this point. It's just not something that that they
2: can deal with. I was just gonna say, in addition to the very real sense of, of suffering and dehumanization that Mayrav mentioned, there's of course the broader political and military risks that both people and the government Feel Right. So that if the aura of invincibility, uh, Israel's deterrence was was pierced on October 7th, you know, that potentially means that other hostile forces on its borders will um, take advantage of what they perceive to be as the weakness. And that's, you know, especially if in the future an attack should be coordinated between Gaza and, say, Hezbollah or Iran and Syria or other places. It's it's just an unacceptable risk. It's also about restoring deterrence, in other words. Well, I think it's too—I mean, it's, it's about restoring deterrence, and it's also about removing a military threat on the border. Israel realized it got two things wrong on September 7th. The first thing it got wrong was how militarily capable Hamas was, and the second thing it got wrong was how willing Hamas was to use that military force, that they were, they were not deterred. And um, you know, for for Israel to accept the fact that there is a capable military force on its border that could move on it at at, at any time uh, is simply uh, not acceptable. You know, the idea of of uh, beefing up uh, border security, repairing the kinds of mistakes that it had before, not falling asleep on intelligence, or of course that evaluation is going to be done, um, and of course Israel hopes to be better at it in the future, but they're not willing to risk their security on not making a mistake. Um, They are intent on wiping out the threat completely. So the military operation,
1: Myrov, as you said earlier, is sort of shrouded in secrecy, understandably. Not a lot of information made public, or even it seems shared outside a very small group of people. But it does seem that the ground incursion, that the ground operations, when they came, have not been as big, not as comprehensive as people expected, at least initially, it's been more gradual. Do you have a sense of what they're doing and sort of what the immediate aims are?
0: From what I can tell, uh, they're trying to cut the Gaza Strip in half between the north and the south, or at least between a a large chunk of the north from the centre. So Gaza City, which is the major kind of Hamas stronghold in the north, uh, where they assume to have a lot of their infrastructure and weaponry and I assume also officials are there, although they could have moved south by now. So they're really kind of, I think, trying to seize in on Gaza City. And so there were bombings in Jabalia, which is very nearby, uh, the refugee camp. My understanding is that they're going to try to kind of crown Gaza City and lay siege on it in some way. And I think there's two main goals. One is pressuring them to release hostages or to, you know, to gain enough achievements for them to feel like they have an upper hand in forcing Hamas to make some kind of concession On the hostage issue, and number two is setting the ground for more of a long-term goal of clearing that area of having uh, the ability to rebuild itself uh, as a military threat, and also something that has to do with the security zone, buffer zone that they want to have. It could have to do with the tunnels and their ability to function there, and so just kind of to to assume control, which is essentially, as far as I can tell, a temporary occupation of that area, um, because I don't see how else they're going to be able to do it.
2: It does seem that the approach is, has changed somewhat over time. Exactly how and why and how much it will continue to evolve is unclear. But it, right, it is clear that Israel started out with what we could call the, an enhanced Dahiyah doctrine, which is the Lebanon uh, reference that is named for Israel's 2006 war when Israel completely flattened the Dahiyah neighborhood in Beirut, a Hezbollah stronghold. The idea of the doctrine is to use disproportionate force. That's not my term. That's the term that was used by the commander of the the Israeli Northern Front at the time to use disproportionate force across a wide area, including against civilians. And Israel's justification for the tactic um, is that military forces are intermingled with civilians, although you can find plenty of cases when Israeli officials speak approvingly um, of 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 harming uh, civilians as a as a war tactic, so that's how Israel started out in Gaza. Like you know, there were what I think six thousand bombs the first week, and then of course on top of that, Israel had its siege approach, right, of denying food, water, medicine, fuel. Right, these are all part of this is this is the enhancement, you know, of Dahia, but but since then, Israel seems to have moved to at least something of a more limited and targeted approach, right? I think now we're up to something around 10,000 bombs, maybe a little bit more. So if that number's right, you know, we're almost a month in now. Um It means from the end of the first week until now, we're only, you know, that's like around 4,000 bombs. That's less than the first week. This also has to do with going in on the ground. It means that you're going to change what you do from the air. And that might indicate, um as some have said, that Israel is moving toward a more, a more focused approach that, that some have called a counterterrorism approach, either because the, the U.S. wasn't really impressed with Israel's lack of planning either for the military campaign or for the, for the day after. Also the increasing pressure around hostages. Uh, it could be any number of reasons, but it does seem like the, the approach right now, um, is is a little bit more more limited, which is not to say that that the campaign as it is now is still is not causing a lot of damage. It is causing an enormous amount of damage. It's just a, it's a different approach than it took right at the outset.
1: Rob, do you want to say something about Hamas's tunnels that have been years in the making? this sort of big underground network in Gaza.
2: Yeah, the, the tunnel network in the north around Gaza City is more for, for Hamas and military-related. You know, people use this term, the Gaza Metro or the, the, the city under the city, to talk about the extent of the, of the tunnels. Hamas claims that there's something like 500 kilometers, which is you know, something like half the length of the New York su- subway system. In Gaza City, it's, it's, it's related to the movement's military operations. There's also uh, other tunnels, the tunnels in the South. I've been to the tunnels in the South, but I have not been to them in Gaza City, which is indicative of the difference. In the South, a lot of the tunnels are for smuggling and the, for the movement of goods. And you know, even the ones that I saw were enormous. You could drive a, a car or truck through these tunnels. That's how vehicles were smuggled in, even as Gaza um, was under uh, Israeli and from the rough side, uh, Egyptian blockade. Um, but in the north, there is a lot more secrecy around those tunnels because that's military infrastructure. So you know, by all accounts, uh, it's, a, it's a very developed network. We can't expect that uh, going into those tunnels, as um, as Mehrav indicated, um, is going to be an incredibly uh, bloody affair. And it's for good reason that Israeli planners are concerned about how that phase of the war would go. Um, I think it's also important to remember um, that um, not everybody fights the last war again. So uh, Israel is not necessarily going to fight the last war uh, in Gaza or fight the last time it w- went in on the ground into Gaza City, which was 2008, 2009. You know, one has to assume it will be quite bloody, but one also would assume that Israel has made some improvements in how it will conduct the warfare.
0: When we talk about like, the tunnel network and, and also the amassing of, of weapons, and you know, I was watching um, a documentary about Yich Sinwar on Israeli TV yesterday, and they were saying that when he went into jail, Hamas was still throwing Molotov cocktails. And when he came out of jail 25 years later, they had this amazing, like this massive rocket uh, weaponry. And it just really advanced technology and cyber, you know, capabilities. And it, and it just goes to show that the Israeli and Egyptian blockade really did nothing to stop them from arming themselves. So that policy is, is clearly a failed policy.
1: Sinwai is the Hamas leader from Gaza. He was jailed by Israel for 20 plus years. Before being released as part of a prisoner exchange deal, but he's now assumed to be in, uh, in Gaza.
0: Yeah, he was freed in the Gilad Shalit deal, um, and everybody knew when he was freed that he was going to become the next Hamas political leader in Gaza. And he's considered to be the most extreme, the most radical, and the most understanding of Israeli society, media, and culture.
1: We talked uh, last time you both came on about sort of options for what comes next. Let's say that Israel can dislodge Hamas from Gaza, can topple its government. Still some uncertainty about whether that's feasible, but let's say it can. We talked last time about the lack of of good options for what comes next, and some have floated this idea of the Palestinian Authority, dominated by Fatah, the rival Palestinian party to Hamas, deeply unpopular, sort of governs the West Bank. People have also floated the idea of some sort of Arab force, but again, really not clear that either of those options are going to work.
0: I mean, the, I think the, the best of the worst is still the PA. I think the U.S. and to an extent some Israelis think that that's the only way to go, but it may not be something that can happen for quite a long time. So then what do you have in the interim? And I think something that also Israel isn't accounting for is the chaos that could, uh, you know, take place in when there's a vacuum and when there's people who are still fighting for power there. Also, I think it's important to remember that this is not going to be a linear, you know, chronological, clear kind of thing. Eventually, it is plausible that some kind of Palestinian self administration or some kind of restored PA with a whole new leadership could come there. That's not something that could happen immediately. So the question is, what happens in the interim? But. I think that Israelis are having these conversations, especially with U.S. pressure. I just think that there really is no good option. Um, and it's something that will take a lot of time to, to develop.
2: It seems like uh, in the last few days, there has been, led by the, the U.S., uh, mentioning the PA in particular, it seems like that option is rising to the top. It's a little bit hard to imagine how that would work. Given that the PA would have trouble going back on you know, riding on Israeli tanks and the lack of respect that it has from the from the Gazan population. But even beyond that, it's a little bit difficult to see how Israel would entrust its security to the PA in Gaza when it does not entrust its security in the West Bank to the PA right? Israel this year had, I forget the number, 400, 500 more raids in the West Bank. You know, it partners with the PA, but it retains a lot of responsibility for its own security. So if Israel tries to partner with the PA in the same way in Gaza, that is going to be tantamount to continued uh, occupation. There's also talk of maybe the Arab states, that Israel has relationships uh, with providing some forces or or other international forces uh, providing some of the security, um, I, I suppose that's possible, you know, maybe in terms of inspections or sort of like along the perimeter. But one of the questions that Israeli officials have always had for me in the past when we've talked about others providing security for them is the suspicion that, foreign forces are not going to fight on behalf of Israel or not as hard as Israel needs them to fight. So whether Israel will accept at this point others providing for its security when it has never accepted that before, um, that seems like a really tall order. Can we talk a bit about Washington and and
1: U.S. policy? We talked about this on previous episodes, this idea that publicly U.S. President Biden believes that he has to show a lot of support for Israel, but maybe behind the scenes is exerting more pressure. Uh, US position does seem to be evolving. Now, it's obviously not enough. And the US is viewed by much of the world, by Palestinians as as complicit, as as part of what's happening in Gaza. But we also know that US politics is very fraught on this. On the one hand, Biden's got his more progressive wing of his Democratic Party, angry that he's more outspoken, but perhaps, uh, but but, but also a, a very strong influential israeli lobby that um, in addition to biden's own convictions seems to make it difficult for him to to call for a false ceasefire
0: i think there's growing pressure for biden to do that i think he already has said today that there should be a humanitarian pause i don't know what amount of force will will convince biden to say so and and pressure israel to do so but at the end of this it's going to have to come back to some kind of political negotiation Um, And, you know, the bigger problem also is that the public sentiment in in Israel against Netanyahu um, and the inability of this cabinet to actually make effective decisions is very, very apparent. And I think the U.S. is also going to grow impatient with the Netanyahu government. Also, what they're doing in the West Bank, it cannot be overstated how dangerous it is and how much that arena is, is bound to explode at this rate with what's happening with the amount of Palestinians being killed and arrested um, and also just the incitement in general.
2: I think what we've learned from past wars is that there does come a point where the U.S. exerts more pressure and the U.S. is able to effectively impose that pressure usually that moment comes after one or more incidents with civilian casualties that are you know, beyond um, even the other civilian casualties that were were caused. I think the bar um, for that kind of U.S. intervention because of civilian losses is higher in this particular case, both because of the nature of the Hamas attack on the 7th of October um, and also because of the Domestic politics right now in the U.S., where you know Biden is, you know, under a lot of pressure, uh, not only from the pro-Israel lobby, but um, also knows that he has a presidential campaign coming up, and uh, in, in that the Republicans are already using uh, this issue to attack him. We've already seen the movement in the U.S. position from lockstep to uh, civilian protection to humanitarian aid. And now it's a Biden's humanitarian pause, but it's going to be at a slower rate than it has been in the past.
1: And we've heard reports from different quarters about a deal, potential deal mediated by the Qataris that would have entailed Hamas releasing some of the hostages. I think the idea was women and children could be others too, in exchange for
2: a number of days pause a pause in fighting. Uh, do we know much about that? About a week after October 7th, it was reported, including in the Israeli press, that Qatar was trying to negotiate an exchange of the women and children held by Hamas for women and children uh, held uh, by Israel as security prisoners. Some of the details are a little bit unclear. There are different versions uh, of the reported offer out there. But the, the basic structure that Hamas wanted to do it and um, in, in Israel didn't want to do it, um, when that was reported, it led to a lot of anger in Israel and, and led to a, um, an elevation of the hostage issue uh, within Israeli society and the families of the hostages to push harder um, after that news was revealed.
1: I guess the idea, Rob, is that if hostages are released, there's a pause that might in some way change the debate in Israel, might put more emphasis, as you say, on, on getting back the hostages, that potentially a pause could open space, maybe make it harder to go back to the same level of destruction Gaza is living through now, that it could even maybe open up a chance to talk to Israeli leaders about what can be done to address some of their concerns about Hamas without so much destruction and uh, and death i mean there's no easy answer as we've talked about before but at least it would give some time to think through some of this stuff i mean that was the idea that we sort of promoted some weeks ago in our early
2: statement on the war. the problem with trying to fast forward to the end of the fighting is that neither israel nor hamas sleepwalked their way to this point like b- both believe that they have more to gain from fighting than, than from doing anything else, right? So Crisis said from the beginning that this proposition that they have more to gain from fighting than anything else, that, that that should be tested, right? That's why we called early on for a ceasefire to enable a hostage release, the entry of aid, and for Israel to lay out, even if not its bottom line, that at least its opening position on what it would take to end the war. This, of course, has not happened, and instead ceasefire calls have been derided as at best naive and at worst traitorous. Mm -hmm. Even even if the intense fighting that's happening now ends up extending into something that's less intense and and, in a longer campaign, I think that a few things are soon going to become clear or clear enough that at... That to some extent, Hamas's military will be degraded, but it will still retain more capacity than Israel wants, and that as a political party, it's it will continue to exist. And second, some number of Israeli soldiers will be killed. Uh, third, it's it's hard to see that Hamas can continue to govern Gaza as it did before, in part because it's a red line for Israel, and in part because so much of Gaza will be destroyed, that it's it's not clear that it will be able to return to the status quo ante. And finally, hopefully, the hostages who are still alive will will be released. So there are are ways to achieve some of these pieces without more fighting, right? Like certain Hamas militants and leaders could go into exile. Um, You could have a hostage or prisoner exchange. Uh, You could have a new technocratic administration that meets certain criteria. Uh, of course, Israel needs to upgrade its its border security. It had a big failure um, that that permitted this to happen on the seventh of October, and you know whatever uh, piece of Israeli security could be improved uh, without changing anything about Hamas at all. Of, of, of course, that improvement needs to happen, um, but but for now, this basic kind of deal is not possible. Um, I think eventually Israel is going to find that the marginal degradation of Hamas is not worth the costs of pressing its campaign. And at a certain point, Hamas is going to want to curb its losses more than it wants to kill another Israeli soldier. Um, but so far, the two sides have not yet reached the, 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 the hurting stalemate, um, as the political scientists say, that would impel them to prefer something other than fighting. But there's a lot of uncertainty. Israel can end up, cutting through Hamas's defenses a lot more quickly than expected, or to the contrary, Israel could find itself bogged down, or Israel could accidentally hit a hospital and kill God knows how many hundreds of people in a single blow. So the U.S., Europe, and the Arab states, um, and, and, and really any other body that, or institution or state that has influence should be talking to the parties already, at least in private, about how to bring the violence to a close so that when the opportunity presents itself, they'll be, they'll be ready. Certainly, nobody should be publicly discounting the idea of a ceasefire. People should be talking about what conditions would enable a ceasefire. Um, if, if people prefer to refer to it as a humanitarian pause, as Biden did, that, that's fine, too. Any stop to the fighting would save lives. And also, once you stop fighting, it's not always so easy to start again.
1: And maybe just to double down on this for for, for a minute, because there does seem to be some pressure, not enough, but some on Israel to at least pause the fighting. But, But as you say, Rob, Hamas itself seems determined to fight. And while Hamas has some ties to some states in the region, Qatar in particular, Turkey, it's not clear how much influence those states actually have over Hamas in
2: terms of telling it to stop fighting. It seems that, you know, Hamas went and undertook the operation on October 7th. It, it knew that it was going to get, um, a quite ferocious response. It, and it knew it was going to get a ground invasion and it, and it, and it wanted that ground invasion. For the last month, they've been bombed from the air. They haven't been able to continue to exact the same toll, um, on, on, on Israel, on Israel's troops uh, until the last few days when Israel started coming in on the ground, um, closer to Gaza City. It seems like Hamas wants to continue with that. The Arab states might be able to um, exert some influence at the margins. They might be able to help with the conversation. But um, it's the military equation in Gaza itself that is going to um, determine uh, how this goes for Hamas.
0: And also how Nasrallah and Hezbollah decide to act, because I think the Palestinians are waiting to hear what he's going to say tomorrow. And they're hoping that Hezbollah will take a more active role in this. Uh, It could be a very gradual incremental escalation, as we've seen so far, but, you know, that could really change the whole game. If Hezbollah were to enter this in a more forceful way, that would give Hamas a lot more uh, backing and and less reason to stand
2: down. Myra, Rob,
1: thanks for coming.
2: Thank you, Richard. Thank you.
1: I also had, last week, the opportunity to speak to Azmi Kashawi. People will probably remember Azmi is as my colleague in Gaza, who'd spoken a few weeks ago on the podcast. Now, we've decided to leave a lot of the discussion in. The experience of Azmi and his family uh illustrative of what many people in Gaza are living through, so we've left a lot of it in. I started by asking what it happened to him and his family over the past few weeks.
3: Hi, Richard. A few days after the war started uh, on Gaza, Uh, The Israeli army had asked the population of the northern Gaza city and northern Gaza Strip to move to the south of the Gaza Valley. Since I have uh, my family and my daughters and everybody, we complied with this request uh, after they say Gaza is going to be a theater of operation and people will not be safe. We went all the way to Hanounis area. We stayed there from the 13th until the 21st. Comparing to Gaza is less frequent bombardment, but it wasn't safe at all. Many people from those people who've been displaced from Gaza thinking that it will be much safer if they comply and go to the south of Gaza, had lost their life in the south. So, uh, basically, they sent them uh, uh, giving the impression that it's going to be safer, but it wasn't safer. On the 21st, the Israelis had hit a house next to uh, the the house where we took shelter. Uh, my family got scared to stay in the same uh, place, so we had moved a little bit north, uh, you know, to balah area. Where we are taking shelter with other friends there in a very small, tiny apartment, we live like four families. Uh, it's uh, it's much worse living conditions, but uh, the feeling of being unsafe, you know, push us towards uh, taking another option.
1: And uh, as we know about the shortages of food, water, gas, a lot of stuff not getting into Gaza, but how are the living conditions now where you are?
3: When we took shelter in the other place, in Deir al uh, living condition was much uh, harder. Already there were scarcity of everything. There were uh, no drinking water. Normal uh, daily use water also was very hard to get. We have no electricity at all, and the little fuel we had, we use it to, to run a generator for one hour. Uh, getting food also wasn't uh, wasn't something easy, you know. I mean, for you have to line up for a bread for three, four hours. Uh, hygiene, cleaning, you know, it becomes very hard. We, you know, I take a shower once every four or five days in, in very, little, very little amount of water street is, is full of uh, of garbage. More people are getting sick uh, because of the infections, flies, mosquitoes. Garbage collection uh, cars, they cannot run in the streets because they have no fuel. So the whole area starts being smelly.
1: And I know you tried over the last few days to get from where you are now in khanunis in the south of the strip back up to, to, to Gaza City to see what was going on with your apartment
3: few days ago, uh, I tried to go back to Gaza to, to check on and to get some uh, change of clothes to, to the family and some blankets. I was, you know, moved by the amount of destruction on the both sides of the road, you know, in different parts of, of the Gaza city until I reached uh, my house, you know to be frank there were uh, many places i didn't have the, the the heart to go and check on it especially the Yarmouk area which is not far from me where they killed hundreds of people under the rubble in one go uh, you know it's just I didn't I didn't have the the guts to go and and uh, just see this kind of destruction, you know. And seeing all of this, it really eats you alive and makes it very hard for you to to continue thinking straight.
1: And what about the areas you did see? the amount of
3: destruction in gaza city was tremendous what i saw is in ramal area i mean this is supposed to be the most uh, beautiful area of uh, gaza city it uh, it was totally wiped out in talil hawa on uh, ansar area i mean scenes out of a horror movie you know or it's an area which has been a hit by an earthquake of uh, a nine or richter scale.
1: Ask me who the people in Gaza blame.
3: People in Gaza are very mad at everyone, they are mad to start with with the Israeli because they think that the Israelis are unmerciful and they are mad about the rest of the world they're mad about the americans for their blind support uh, to israel they are mad about the europeans who always talk about human rights and when it comes to rights of palestinians uh, they they are doing nothing they are mad about the arabs who who until now they failed even to open rafah crossing to to bring uh, medication for the palestinians i think you know, I, I didn't hear them uh, talking about uh, if they are mad about Hamas or not, because they think in the middle of this battle now it's not uh, the proper time. Probably they will express more feeling about that after the battle is over. But now uh, what, what what you can really hear them about, you know, all over the news, and when you see them in hospital and here and there are, are mad about the international community, because they think, uh, why these humanitarian laws are there, if not to protect the innocent civilians? In in the past few days, I was going to the hospital almost every day. I was astonished of the amount of 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 killed people. Mainly, all what you see is just people uh, are wrapped in white, you know, and people doing the prayers, and they, they are taking them. Uh, taking them to to mass graves and burying them, and more people come. This is like the the scene you see every every fifteen or twenty minutes. I mean, much less people are coming to the hospital alive than did. It's just very moving. Some of those people are unknown in the building which they hit yesterday they still bringing bodies, and nobody even left to recognize them. Any people from who are taking shelter in the hospital, they do the prayers on them, then they take them and put them in massive graves. Many of them is not recognized. One of the incidents is there is a baby... From that, uh, all family were were killed, and he was brought to the hospital. And one of the journalists just uh, was holding him, uh, and on one of the media say, "Please, if anyone knows uh, this baby or any of his family, they can come and pick him up." You know, the the amount of stories uh, is really devastating. It's it's really hard.
1: And as me, I know that you know many people that have been killed or have had their family members killed or, or, or injured is that the same for pretty much everyone in Gaza
3: this war is much different than the wars before almost every one of us knows at least one or two or more being killed you know everyone I met had lost either a family or a friend or someone he works with or someone he knows every Palestinians had been directly affected either with death or wounded uh, people in this war. In the past couple of days alone, they had hit one building with 300 people were in that particular building called the Mohandisin building. And uh, until today, they are bringing dead people out of of the rubble because of the lack of uh, equipment to dig people fast enough to to save their life. And also, they hit a uh, couple of places in the most crowded part of uh, the Gaza Strip, which is Jabalia Camp. And when you hear the news, I mean, you're just feeling when it's gonna, you know. When you're going to be next, you know, or when you're going to be, you're going to hear about your brother, or your sister, or, or your friends, or your daughter, or your grandson, this kind of feeling to, that you are living and you don't know for how long you're going to be living.
1: Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on the war in Gaza, Israel-Palestine, more broadly on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at crisisgroup. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, Alex Vigorsky, and thanks, of course, to all our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, if you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating, and I very much hope you'll join us again next time.